Well, this morning we're going to look at another pivotal passage in the Psalms, and I want to speak to you on the subject of how much of God do you want? As I began to work on this message, I realized that in any crisis, there's an initial desire to speak to God, to find out what God is trying to say to us, to to see where we are. Does God care? Does God see? Does he does he know? But the longer you're in a crisis, you begin to wane in your pursuit of God. And the question comes to mind, how much of God do you want? We are now another week into this pandemic, confined to our homes, people are quarantined, churches cannot assemble, restaurants are closed, sports events are canceled, concerts are canceled, gatherings are shut down, and the question comes, where's God? And how much of God do we have in a moment like this? It is very easy in a secular world to look at a situation like this and say, we will figure it out, and to push the faith community to the side as if we are not a vital part of helping our community, our region, our state, our nation. The reality is that every time there's been a crisis, that hospitals have been built, orphanages have been built, uh, slavery has been abolished, pandemics have been dealt with, all kinds of things have happened in the midst of crisis because the faith community was involved. This is no time for us to just huddle up with us four and no more or just our family or just us by ourselves. This is a time for us to see what God would say about how we need to think because how we think is going to determine how we act. Psalm 63 is the psalm this morning. How much of God do you want? It was the morning psalm of the post-apostolic church in the third century. It was a custom of the early church fathers to read or sing this psalm publicly every day. And on the Lord's day, it was the first psalm that the church read or sang. Now, on our website, you can download notes for this sermon, but uh, that right there was, was in the notes, so even now you can download those notes. But I want to read Psalm 63, and let's see what David is saying in this moment of crisis. God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live and I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, my right hand, your right hand upholds me. You remember last week we talked about God's right hand and right arm upholding our right arm. His strength is there even when our right arm of strength is gone. He upholds us. 
Now, David is writing this psalm at a time of crisis in his life. He has been king. He has survived the threats of King Saul. But now he's living in the wilderness in Judah because his own son, Absalom, has rebelled against him. You see that in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 19. David's in the wilderness, but he's longing to be back in the sanctuary while his enemies, yes, even his own son, wants him gone. He's at a low ebb, but the great thing about this psalm is it's a one of continuous praise. And so the question comes, can we praise God in a crisis? Do we have enough of God in our hearts to stand in the storm when the crisis is there or when we are in times of solitude? David didn't have an entourage around him. He's running for his life. He, he didn't wait for perfect circumstances. He just begins to praise God. His attention is on heaven. Look at verse 1. My soul thirsts. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied. Verse 8, my soul clings to you. David's problem was he was in the wilderness because of the son's rebellion. Our problem is we're being isolated and confined, and we have fear because of a virus that is spreading and uncertain around this world. But David would give us hope here. That our answer in any situation, in any crisis, is God. Yes, we're thankful for the government, but our answer is not God plus government. Our answer is not God plus anything or anyone else. It is God and God alone who can sovereignly sweep down in moments like this, revive his church, deal with a crisis, and expand the gospel and glorify his name. God does not change, though our problems can change. Our problem is different from David's, but we do have a problem. What did David want in this crisis? He wanted a personal relationship. A personal relationship. Look at this simple and profound statement. Oh God, you are my God. What an affirmation that he makes. He's being squeezed. He's being pressured. He's in the wilderness. But the first thing out of his mouth as he writes this psalm, which was a song for the Hebrew hymn book, is, God, you are my God. What's our first thought when a crisis comes? David's trial led him to God. And his God was just as real to him in the wilderness as he had been with him in the sanctuary. Now, let me just speak a word here because we don't know how long this confinement and no large meetings are going to happen. If you want to know why church attendance is important, it is what you learn when you are gathered with the body of Christ that helps you survive the wilderness. I'm going to say that again. It's what you learn when you've been gathered with the body of Christ that helps you survive the wilderness. It's the love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another. When we do that consistently as a body, when we find our strength in the body of Christ, 
as an extension of the mind and the heart of God, when we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, when that happens, then when we are isolated, whether it's you're in a nursing home or you're in a hospital room or you're confined to home waiting for test results, whatever it is, when your back is against the wall, you draw strength from the times that you were with other believers. This is important because we already know that the Lord is our strength, but in the wilderness we find out if we just know it or if we believe it. How much of God do we want? We must draw from a well that's inside of us, and if we are not filling our hearts with Jesus and finding encouragement from the body, one day we'll be dry. Here are two things I want you to remember. What God teaches you in the sanctuary equips you for the wilderness. And what God teaches you in the wilderness should cause you to praise him in the sanctuary. I want to tell you, I, I know how much of God I want. I will not be late the first Sunday we can all gather together again. I will not say, well, now that we can all go back to church, let's go to the lake or let's go to the beach. Let's, let's go run away. I will find fellowship with God's people because in the fellowship of God, there's the presence of God where God dwells and manifests with us among his people. David took his sorrow and turned it into a song. Don't ever underestimate what God can teach you in a wilderness. Let me just give you some, some references. Hagar saw God in the wilderness in Genesis 16:13. Moses saw God in the wilderness in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 4. Elijah saw God in the wilderness in 1 Kings 19, 4 through 18. Israel was led by God in the wilderness and fed by God in Deuteronomy 8. Sometimes God has to send a crisis and a wilderness experience where all the props are knocked out from under us. We can't go do what we used to do so that we look up to him and say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Oh God, let's stop here. I mean, have you ever gotten bad news? Or have you ever been desperate and you just cried out, oh God, oh my God, what is going on? That's what David is doing. He goes straight to the throne of God. But I want you to see what he's saying here. The oh God is Elohim. You are my God is a confession of faith, not a secondhand experience. He's, he's his God, my God. Hebrew is El, which means the strong and mighty one. I feel weak. I feel helpless. I feel confined. God is the strong and mighty one. He's not just the God of creation. He's the God of covenant. And he is the God of comfort. It's not just in the scripture. Oh yeah, I know that's in the Bible. That scripture is in my heart. Because God has put the word in me to draw on and to feast on. Look, look at these words closely. I'm just going to break it down. And just you... All caps are my God. There's no rival for the throne of my heart. Sports is not my God. Entertainment is not my God. My 
401 3C is not my God. My, what I got on my 1099 is not my God. My investments are not my God. My ability to go do whatever I want to do is not my God. He says, you are my God. And then he says, you are, put all caps on R, my God. Not just when things are going well. There are a lot of fair-weather Christians. When things are going well, they, they love God. When things are going bad, they say, God, where are you? How much of God do you want? You are my God, personalized faith. Not my wife's God, not my husband's God, not my parents' God, not my grandmother's God, not my friend's God. You're my God. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. And you are my God, the one and only, the one that I live for, the one that I look to. You see, it's just like God to take a pit, a prison, or a pain and turn it into a tool for his glory and the salvation of others. Think about your one right now. They're confined. They can't go do anything. How are you investing in your one? How are you checking on your one, praying for your one, encouraging your one, taking a meal over to their house. God can take this time when we feel confined and give us a platform on somebody's front porch to share good news and to bring God glory. In the most difficult of circumstances, we can maintain intimate fellowship. Now is the time when you can't not, you cannot, I trust me, go to the bank with this. You cannot live off of second-hand experiences. You can't live off, well, the children's pastor said this, or the youth pastor said this, or, or my Sunday school teacher said this, or the preacher said this. So it's got to be your faith. How much of God do you want? Or are you just living in the flow of what other people are seeing with God, but you're missing it. You're missing it, and it doesn't seem to be working for you. And if it's not working for you, I can tell you why. Because you're not acting like he's your God. He's their God, and you're hoping that they'll cover for you. That's not the way God wants to work in this crisis. God, my God. Secondly, I need intimate fellowship. I need intimate fellowship. I will seek you earnestly. The first word indicates an intense desire, not only seeking him first, but seeking him wholeheartedly. Earnestly, the King James says, early. The noun is the dawn. The verb is to seek. And it's the same root in Hebrew. It means to break in. I will seek you earnestly. David is saying, I'm going to break into heaven like the dawn breaking into the darkness. I'm getting to God. I'm boldly going into the presence of God. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Now in your notes... There are one of three categories that everyone watching this will be in. And in fact, everybody that says they are a believer will be in one of these three categories. 
There are those who know Jesus in name only. They have religion. They're morally good people. They can talk to you about God, but they have no recall of establishing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They may have made a decision somewhere at some time. They may have been baptized in some church or sprinkled as a baby, but they know God in name only. Let me tell you, if you only know God in name only, you don't have the God you're going to need in this crisis. You're going to find yourself swept away. There's a second group, and that's the Sunday morning saints. These are people that, if it's convenient to worship, if it's convenient to serve, if it's convenient to give, if it's convenient to pray, if I don't have anything else on my planned out prearranged schedule this Sunday, I might go to church. Now you say, well, that's ridiculous. The averages in America today is that people go to church about one Sunday out of four. One out of four. And we're talking about people that in surveys will say, I believe I'm a regular church member, an average church member. But they come one time out of four. What if you took your medicine one day out of four? What if you went to work one day out of four? What if you showed up for your team practice one day out of four? What if your team played one game out of four? You would say, those people don't get it. And can I tell you, if your God is designated to only being a convenient God, then he may, he may be your savior, but he is not your Lord. Because you, if he's your Lord, you love what he loves and you do what he tells you to do. And there is surrender. The third, this is where I hope I find myself, is we don't settle for anything less than the fullness of God. We don't settle for anything less than the fullness of God. Now, there are believers in, in every church that play in the shallow end of the pool. But those that have been to the deep end of the pool know it's a different experience. But then there are those who have understood what it means to walk with God and they swim in the depths of the oceans of God and find that as much as they know about him, there's so much more to learn about him. They find in him not just conversion, but consecration. So here's a thought. God establishes the relationship. We cultivate the fellowship. God establishes the relationship. God is the agent of salvation from start to finish. God is the agent. We didn't decide to get saved. God convicted our hearts for us to be saved. We, we didn't decide that we wanted to go to heaven instead of hell. God convicted us that apart from Christ, we would spend eternity in hell. But God establishes a relationship, but we cultivate the fellowship. David is running his life on this cultivated fellowship. Verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. Verse 9, those who seek my life to destroy it. He, in the midst of the battle or in the sanctuary, he's cultivating a relationship. This is consistent with other psalms. You'll see some there in your notes. Psalm 57, 
7 and 8. Psalm 130, verses 6 and 7. David goes on to say, My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul is thirsty for you like a parched land. I have an unquenchable thirst for you. The Moffat translation says, I yearn for thee, I thirst for thee, I long for thee. David is exiled from the throne. He is exiled from the place of worship, but he's not exiled from God. And he's longing to be back in that place of worship. He's thirsting because God, every time, meets him at the point of his need. Jesus said, I'm the living water. I'm the abundant water. I'm the artesian well of water. How much of God do you want? Just a sip? Just a sip? Just a glass? Or do you want to stand in front of the fire hydrant of the flow of God in your life? Again, in your notes, David thirsts for God, and we see it in Psalm 42 and verse 1 about the deer panting for the water, and my soul pants for you. In Psalm 84 and verse 1 and 2, in Psalm 143 and verse 6, the psalmist is over and over talking about thirsting for God, longing for God. He says, my flesh yearns for you. It drives him. It feeds him. Notice, he is not yearning for the palace and the comforts of the palace. He's yearning for God and the comfort that God brings him. Vance Havner said, it's one thing to say Jesus is all you want until he's all you've got, and then you find out he's all you ever really needed. So let's look at some things about David here. First of all, he has seen God in the past, verse 2. That's why it's important for us to remember the times when we have had good days Because in a bad day, you always forget the good days. He has seen God working in the past. Look at verse 2. I have seen you in the sanctuary. That means to gaze up. David has looked up to God and seen the invisible God in his heart. And he looks back to God. He remembers in this crisis that he is missing something. And so he turns to God. He looks to God. He knows that God has met him over and over in the past in the sanctuary. Some folks never seem to see God, and they don't even know when he's gone. David knew. I love the sanctuary. I know, I remember what happened to me in the sanctuary. He's rehearsing the high-water marks in his life. He's sitting in the wilderness. He's reflecting So let me make an application to the family called Sherwood Church right now. My prayer is that when this crisis is over, all of us, not just the first and third crowd, the second and fourth crowd, not just the Sunday morning crowd, all of us will appreciate the privilege of gathering together when we took it for granted. What have you taken for granted in your relationship with God? My prayer is, if this lasts another week, another six weeks, or another six months, 
that when and if the time comes that the Lord opens the door, that there's some way that we can get back to some element of normal, that you will appreciate the privilege of rubbing shoulders with the people of God. When we can shake hands again, when we can hug each other again, when we can go to a funeral instead of staying away, when we can go to a wedding instead of staying away, when we can go out to eat and invite friends to join us. But most of all, when we can gather in our connect groups and we can share tears and we can share joy and we can share laughs and we can share sorrows, that when this is over, we will appreciate and not forget, not forget how precious it is when we get to gather in God's house. Secondly, he knew God was working in the present. Verse 6, on my bed I remember you. I think of you through the night. Verse 7, you have been my help. Verse 8, your right hand upholds me. He, he never accused God of abandoning him in this crisis. He's cut off from the city, but he's not cut off from God. One wise saint said, the wise man seeks first what the fool seeks last. Vance Havner used to tell the story of a business meeting that was not going well and people were upset. The church was in a crisis and one man stood up and said, I think we need to pray. And this lady stood up and threw her hands in the air and she said, oh, my soul, has it come to that? At the end of this message, I'm going to give you a couple of things to pray about. And it won't be in there, but I'm going to ask you right now, are you praying about how much of God do you really want? Just a Band-Aid? Listen, you're hemorrhaging. We're hemorrhaging. You want a Band-Aid? It's not going to fix it. You want a temporary relief? It's broken. It's not going to, a temporary relief is not going to fix it. Thirdly, he knows God's will that it will work in the future. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied with the marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. David wasn't easily satisfied. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was an incredibly rich man. He set the platform for Solomon, who became the richest man in the world. But David knew what would make him happy. And the reason that our world is stressed out and our world is in angst and worry and frustration is because we have looked to the things of this world to make us happy. And they won't. A ball game only lasts so long. A movie only lasts so long. You know, a meal only lasts so long. A vacation only lasts so long. God is the God of the past, the present, and the future. He's the one that makes you happy. Blessed are you, Jesus said. Happy are you. The Beatitudes are there to tell us to change the way you think about what real happiness looks like. And then finally, David said, I long for God's glory. All other reasons are secondary. David is yearning, in verse 2, to see your power and your glory. Notice what he's not focused on. He's not focused on, I can't wait to get after my enemies. 
He's not focused on vindication. He's not focused on his crown or his kingdom. He's focused on God's glory. By the way, you could be watching too much television and your focus becomes the panic instead of turning the TV off and saying, Lord, I know enough to pray intelligently right now. I can pray specifically right now. Because every five people you watch, they give you ten different opinions. What you need is to say, Lord, I'm confused. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. But I turn to you. David is not trying to get revenge. You know what he's not worried about? He's not worried about the 2020 election. He's not worried about the primaries. He's not worried about who's running the government. What he is concerned about first and foremost, and that's the context in which I want you to hear this, what he's concerned about first and foremost is his personal relationship with God. Not everybody else's, his. Hosea 6.3 says, let us press on to know the Lord. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. I love what Manly Beasley said. He said, a glimpse of God will save you, but to gaze at him will sanctify you. This crisis has the ability to take us to a new dimension in our faith walk. This crisis has the ability to help us see that we have made the secondary primary and the primary secondary. This crisis can make us understand that all the distractions that we have and all the things we use to dull our empty lives are not working. That what we really need is a fresh encounter with God. You see, this crisis can be the beginning of something new in our lives, in our church. Like Abraham on the mountain when God provided the sacrifice. Like Jacob at Bethel when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and and God blessed him. Like Moses at the burning bush when God revealed himself. Like Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw the glory of Jesus. Like the 120 in the upper room when Pentecost came. Like Paul on the road to Damascus when he was struck down and struck blind but given a call to ministry. Like you and I in Southwest Georgia, or wherever you are watching this, learning to understand that it is in God that I find my strength. It is in God that I find my hope. It is in God that I keep my sanity. That it is in this moment, this defining moment, however long it lasts, changes the path of my life. I'm not taking every detour this world says, this looks like a good road, go on it. I'm staying focused on him. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, I've never met anybody that's hungered and thirsted for God, that wanted God's glory in their life, that has ever been disappointed. God always shows up to those who want him most. You may ask yourself, well, did Jesus have favorites? Now listen to me. I'm coming close to the end. That doesn't mean turn, turn your device off right now. Listen to me. Jesus always took three, Peter, James, and John, 
He took them to the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't take the other nine. He took them deeper into the garden. He didn't take the other nine. He took them aside. He didn't take the other nine. Why? It's not because Jesus had favorites. It's because he had intimates. Those three apparently displayed to the Lord Jesus that they wanted more of him than the other nine did. Jesus doesn't choose favorites. Ground's level for the cross. But how intimate we are with God depends on us, us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 107 and verse 9, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. So, in just a moment we'll finish, but I want to give you prayer points to pray about. First of all, I want to ask you to pray that God will make you thirsty. That God will make you thirsty. And I want to ask you to pray that you won't settle for anything less in these moments than a fresh encounter with the living Lord. Pray that God will make you thirsty. And pray, Lord, I don't want to settle for anything less than a fresh encounter with the living Lord. So my question at the first is now my question at the end. How much of God do you want? The answer to that stops at the end of this service. God bless you. Go to the Lord in prayer.